Let's pray. Oh Lord, we come hungry for a word from you. We see our lives and we know that uh, without you, something that's deep and vital is missing. And so, Lord, we ask that you will speak to us through your Holy Spirit and through your word into our heart of hearts. Address us right where we need it most today, Lord. Let us not leave here without knowing that we have heard from you. We pray in Christ's name, amen. You know, sometimes I wonder, what are we looking for when we come to church? Maybe we're, we're, a lot of us are looking for different things. Uh, we, we come just kind of generally to be lifted up. Uh, we want to laugh a little. We want to, you know, exchange some smiles and some handshakes and some hugs. And we also want to energize our faith. We want to leave this place, you know, with our steps a little lighter and our day a little brighter. And yet, there are times in our lives when all of that positivity we find just repulsive. Like, I don't want it. I mean, I, we don't want to act happy when we're not feeling it. We don't want to wear a pretend smile when inside we are heartbroken. Not that I think we have to do that here, but sometimes we feel that way. Last July, my father-in-law died after suffering from Lewy Bodies dementia for a number of years. Any of you familiar with Lewy Bodies? Yeah, a number of you are. Uh, now, long before his di he was diagnosed, though, he showed some of the signs and symptoms of it. Uh, for example, he would have disturbing hallucinations. And you, you couldn't talk him out of them. I mean, for him, it was absolute truth. And, then, and yet, at other times, he seemed completely normal. His last two years, he spent in a nursing facility. And then he had, you know, kind of like a lot of people, he had good days and bad days. I remember one time Trish and I were visiting with him and he wept inconsolably talking about how his brother had died in the D-Day invasion in World War II. Now, his brother was in that invasion, but he did not die. He lived decades on. But we couldn't convince him of that. And it seems so unfair to us that, that this man that, that we, we loved and looked up to, this, my father-in-law, after, after a, a life of, of deep trust in God and love for people and devotion to his family, it just seemed so cruel that his life would end like this. And the longer it went on, the more we prayed, oh, don't let him linger too long. Take him home. Today we start a three-Sunday series on the book of Job. And this is the book of the Bible that takes the problem of suffering head on. Let's open our Bibles to the beginning of the book of Job. If you're using the Pew Bible, it's on page 500. And the book of Job is right before the book of Psalms. So it's near the end of the first half of the Bible. Um, now, before we get into it, we need to ask, what kind of literature is the book of Job? 
Uh, and I've said this before, it's always worth saying again, that you can only understand the Bible rightly when you recognize the genre you're reading. So we want to read poetry poetically. We want to read history historically. We want to read Proverbs proverbially and biographies biographically and so on. So I want us to now review the first three verses uh, of, of this, chapter 1, and look for clues, will you? Look for clues as to what kind of literature this is. In the land of Uz, that's Uz, not Oz. <laughs> and by the way, we don't know where Uz was. Cuz. <laughs> anyway, east of Israel somewhere. There lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters. He owned 7,000 sheep and 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen and 500 donkeys, and he allowed a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. So... What do you guess the genre is here? It has all the signs of a story. You could easily translate the first line, once upon a time in the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. In Jewish style, the numbers seven and three speak of perfection and completeness. Job had seven sons and three daughters. He had 7,000 sheep and 3,000 camels. A thousand represents a multitude, and his 500 yoke of oxen and his 500 donkeys brings his, beast to a, his, his beasts of burden to a great plethora of animals he owned. Now, don't get me wrong. I assume there was a real Job. Lived in ancient times. He's mentioned in the book of Ezekiel. Perhaps the book of Job is somewhat based on his life. But the book of Job is a drama. In the first two chapters, the narrator tells us the backstory. And then for 39 chapters, the actors come on stage and challenge each other with their points of view. Finally, the narrator returns to give us the conclusion of the story. Now, if I were directing this as a play, I'd stage it so that when the narrator opens the story, he's interrupted by four messengers in rapid succession. Job, all your oxen and donkeys have been stolen and your servants killed. Job, fire from the sky has, has killed all your sheep and servants. Job, all your camels were taken by wrestlers and your, and your servants were killed. Job, a storm came and collapsed the house where all your children were feasting and all of them died. And you thought you were having a bad day. And while this may be a story, it's not just a story, is it? It's our families. It's our lives. We are Job. We are Job. But unbeknownst to Job, before these soul-crushing calamities, a scene takes place in the spiritual realm. Satan shows up at the court of the Lord. And by the way, the word Satan means adversary or accuser. Let's look at verse 8. Then the Lord said to Satan, kind of bragging here a little bit. 
Have you considered my servant Job? <laughs> there is no one like him on the earth. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Remember, this is God's opinion of Job. Job is faithful. I mean, he's not perfect, but of all the people, this guy is it. He's the best. He's a model of a man. Later in chapter 31, Job says he, he's been honest and trustworthy, and he stayed far away from sexual temptations. He was fair and generous with his servants. He shared food with orphans and widows. He gave warm clothes to those who were cold. He welcomed travelers into his home and fed them. He did not worship money or possessions. He worshiped the Lord, and all the good things he did came from his devotion to God. So no wonder God says, nobody on earth like him. But the accuser claims that Job is so devoted to God because look at him, he's so richly blessed. But watch, if, if the rug were pulled out from under him and uh, you, just, you just see Job would change his tune. Let's look at verse 10. Can you follow verse 10 with me? The accuser says, Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. Now, in ancient times, talking about that hedge, a hedge of thorns would often be planted around a vineyard to protect it from being trampled by animals. And Satan accuses uh, God of bribing Job to be faithful by surrounding him with a hedge of protection. Once the hedge is removed and his prosperity vanishes, Satan predicts that Job will curse God to his face. Sometimes I feel like I, I've been privileged with a hedge of protection. You know, I'm in good health. I have a son and daughter who are healthy and we have good relationships with them. I'm married to a woman who, who loves me. I don't own any sheep or camels, but we have two cars and a home we hope to have paid off by the time we retire. Life is good. But I don't know what tomorrow brings. My daughter was in a car accident uh, last Sunday. Fortunately, she's fine. But I also know bad things happen. We could lose one or both of our kids through an accident or, one, or a thousand other ways. I also think, you know, it could happen. I could be falsely accused of some kind of malicious misconduct here at the church and the bishop could remove me and revoke my credentials and then what if I can't get a job and we lose the house and our debts pile up and what will I think of God then? Will I still praise him? Will I still sing of his amazing grace? And I know some people will look at me sideways thinking he must have done something wrong to, do for all, to deserve all that's happened to him. So then will I still worship God 
Or will I say, I give up? Let's skip down to verse 20. After Job hears the tragic news, at this Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head, so he's expressing his grief. Then he fell to the ground in worship and said, and I want us to all say the words of Job together there, shall we? Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. Or as some uh, older translations put it, the Lord gives, and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. But when Job says that, he doesn't know what he doesn't know. He doesn't know that all this began with the accuser, not God. And even though God allowed it, and that's a messy thing to think about right there, he, all, he doesn't know that these tragedies were carried out by the accuser and not by God. Um, I've met uh, Asbury Seminary professor, Dr. Ben Withering, B Witherington, he and I exchange emails on, on a very occasional basis. Uh, a few years ago, his 32-year-old daughter died suddenly and unexpectedly from a blood clot to the lung. But Dr. Ben does not say that God took her. He refuses to say that. Now, we admire Job's faith when he says the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. But you see, Job doesn't know the whole story. Job doesn't know that the death of his children was instigated by and carried out by Satan. Now, Dr. Ben doesn't say that his daughter's death was a personal attack from Satan. But as a Christian, he recognizes that we live in a broken, fallen world, a world filled with inexplicable tragedies. But most of all, Dr. Ben believes that his daughter's death did not happen because God took her. In Job chapter 1, we get to peek behind the curtain to the conversation between the Lord and the accuser. But even then, I was, as I kept rereading that chapter, I realized there's a lot we still don't know. Why is there a, an accuser at all? Doesn't say. Why does God allow the accuser to do anything? We don't know. And maybe the point of giving us this, this glimpse behind the curtain is to remind us that when we're in the thick of it, we never know what's behind the curtain. We don't know why bad things happen to good people. And yet, like Job, we cling to the faith that God is good even when life is bad. Even when we don't know the why. Even when we don't have all the answers. I may have shared with you uh, before about a, a couple who were mentors for me when I was uh, a young man, a, a pastor named Bob and his wife, Eileen. Um, Bob went to be with the Lord a couple of years ago. Eileen still remains in, in southern Missouri. I met him when I was a college student. And uh, those of us who have been to walk, walk to Emmaus retreats are indebted to them because they were major uh, people in getting Walk to Emmaus started in Nebraska. 
Bob and Eileen had two daughters and two sons. Uh, before I met them, their older daughter and her husband and their two young children were in a car that happened to be following a tow truck. And somehow the car being towed got disengaged from the truck and came careening toward them. Their daughter, their son-in-law, and their two grandchildren, all four, were killed. This loss was a source of pain for Bob and Eileen the rest of their lives. They did not hide from their grief, but I can tell you that they were people of faith and that they found a way to be people of great joy. Like Job, they clung to the faith that God is good even at times when, God is, when, when life is bad. Bob also said that the ripple effect of sin entering this world was behind those deaths in some way. And more directly, he wondered if, if the designer of the equipment that secured the car to the truck was negligent, or, or if the manufacturer might have cut corners a little bit to, uh, to increase profits, or if the tow truck operator got in a hurry and was, was a little careless that day. But one thing Bob and Eileen would not say is that God took their family members. They, they, they would not say it was God's plan. They would not say that, that the Lord needed them in heaven. Many years ago, I, I met a young woman who grew up in the church where I was uh, pastor. Shelly, at this time, was, you know, in her early 30s and uh, was a, already a high-profile investment banker in Chicago. And she had, I met her when she had returned to her hometown church for her younger sister's wedding. And, and Shelly also, you know, looked like a movie star, which kind of ele elevated her celebrity status. And just months after that, I was conducting her funeral. She was murdered. Many people from the Chicago business community came to our small town to attend the service. The Omaha World Herald sent a reporter out to cover it. And the next day, the, the paper uh, quoted my funeral message extensively, starting with when I said, Shelley's death was not God's will. This is not what God wanted to happen. A few days later, I received a letter from a guy in Omaha who'd read the article and took issue with my theology. He believed that, especially if you're a Christian, everything that happens to you must be God's will. I disagree. His viewpoint mirrors what Job wrongly assumed, that it's always the Lord who takes away. But that's because Job couldn't see behind the curtain. He didn't know the impact of evil and chaos in this world. For now, evil and chaos have room to operate and to oppose God's will. 
But on the day of resurrection, Satan and his influence will be locked away forever. Now, the person who wrote me and I, at least we agreed on one thing. Even though we had different explanations about, you know, why bad things happen, but we agree on this. Like Job, we cling to the faith that God is good even when life is bad. And you want to say, well, wait, wait, Steve. You're telling me that you're ready to thank God for all of the good things and then just let him off the hook for the bad things? Yeah. That's exactly what I'm saying. I know it may feel like a double standard, but I think this is what faith is. I give God, God credit for the blessings and don't blame him for the disasters. Like Job, I cling to the faith that God is good even when life is bad. And when I'm in pain and when I'm in grief, I don't know why. I can't see behind the curtain. And neither could Jesus, by the way, at least for the time when he was in pain and grief on the cross, he cried out the lament from Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? At that moment, even Jesus didn't understand why. And yet, he clung to the faith that God is good even when life is bad. He prayed, Father, into, the, into your hands I commit my spirit. When life doesn't make sense, and that's fairly often, when you feel abandoned, Jesus knows what you're going through. He's walked through it as well, and he will walk with you now. He will walk with you through it. And we know that belonging to Jesus is not a hedge to protect us from all suffering, even though sometimes we wish it was. Jesus experienced suffering, and he said, well, you're going to as well. But I also know that for some of you here today, your pain and grief that you have experienced has become a barrier. It's become a barrier to believing. How can you trust God when you hurt this badly? How can you put your faith in God when life is so unfair? I can understand those kind of questions. But like with Job, there's more going on than you and I will ever know or understand. So this morning, I'm going to ask you to respond with the words, like Job, I cling to the faith that God is good even when life is bad. But rather than say it in unison, I invite you to stand, if you're able, and whenever you're ready, and just say it loud and clear on your own. We've probably got about 200 people here, so I'm just hoping that 200 voices speaking individually will affirm this as our, as our faith. So I invite you to stand and respond. Now let's all stand as we pray. 
Oh, Lord God, we just feel sometimes jerked around by life. and We want to believe the best, and yet sometimes we don't feel we have it in us. And so, Lord, we're, we're asking you to meet us at this point of pain and grief and loss. Our confusion, our not understanding, and help us to trust in your goodness. And Lord, we want to be a part of the goodness that you are creating ultimately on the day of resurrection, and we want to be a part of the goodness that you are creating in this world right now, piece by piece, person by person, day by day. Lord, that we can be a part of the healing that you are bringing in the name of Christ. Amen.